Good morning, Sovereign Grace. So great to see so many of you and gather together to worship as we do each Sunday. If I haven't met you yet, if you're new to the church, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to be able to preach from Psalm 56 this morning. Let's turn in God's Word to Psalm 56 as we continue to make our way through the Psalter. We have another glorious Psalm of David in just 13 verses this morning. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living and holy God. Let's attend to it as such. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off Terebus, a mictim of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me, for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back In the day when I call, this I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are glorious and good and kind. Father, even though we know you are a faithful father who delights and giving good gifts to your children. We confess, Lord, that our hearts are so prone to despair, to doubt, and to fear. Lord, we so often believe the lies in this world that are straight out of the garden, straight out of Satan's mouth, that you don't have our best interests in mind, that you won't really provide what we need, and God, that you are not for us. Father, please forgive us for ever doubting that truth. Help us, Lord, to see how faithful you are this morning from your holy word so that our fear and our despair would turn to faith, faith and trust in you so that you would be glorified, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I wonder what words or images or Scenes come to your mind when you think about David. 
that glorious figure, that glorious man in the Old Testament, what first comes to your mind when you think about David? Now, kids, I'll bet one of the first things that comes to your mind is probably David the warrior, right? David the hero. I know that's what would have come to my mind when I was younger. The first thing probably would have been David and Goliath, right? That great story in 1 Samuel 17. That story where David has such great courage and trust in the Lord, he's able to slay the giant with just a few stones. And God delivers all of Israel through David on that great day. Or maybe, kids, one of your favorite stories with David is David the little shepherd boy. I would imagine that story kind of resonates for a lot of kids, especially if you're from a big family and you're kind of the runt in the family or the small person in the family. Maybe you remember in 1 Samuel 16 when all of Jesse's sons passed before Samuel and God rejects all of them because God doesn't judge on outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. And then they call little David in from the fields and that little brother is anointed king, Israel's future king. Now, adults, I would imagine maybe the first thing that comes to our mind is David the poet, David the musician, or David the psalmist. We think of our favorite psalms, the words that we go back to time and time again, and we think, I would love to meet this man after God's own heart. I would love to learn from him, follow in his footsteps, see how we love God, because he's a great example for us in many ways. We can learn a lot from his obedience, we can also learn a lot from his disobedience, can't we? Maybe that's the first image that came to your mind, is David the sinner, David the adulterer. Maybe you remember how David betrayed his God and his nation and Bathsheba and her husband Uriah by committing adultery and then later murder, doing horrible sin that nearly destroyed his entire life and the nation itself. But God had mercy on David. And David repented. And because of David's repentance, he becomes a model of repentance even for us. I'm sure there are a number of different images and scenes from the Bible that you remember when you think of David. But I'll bet almost nobody in this room thought of David afraid. David the fearful or David in exile. Which is kind of amazing because David spent a good part of his life in exile. The first part on the run from Saul and the second part on the run from his son Absalom. And while he was in exile, it was really there where God used that exile, that persecution and that fear to forge his faith in God. Help him trust in the promises and to build his character. And that's exactly what we see happening in this psalm, in Psalm 56. We see him wrestling with fear and getting to faith. I hope you notice that as we read through this psalm. There's a battle going on here. There's two competing voices, and it's almost like a tug-of-war because it's back and forth, back and forth. On one hand, we have the voice of fear, which is really verses 1 through 2, and then again in verses 5 through 7. And then we see that fear being fought with the voice of faith, of trust in God. We see that in verses 3 and 4, and then again from verse 8 all the way to the end of 13. Now, David does land in a great place, even though it starts really rough. But what exactly moves him from that fear to faith, to trust in God? What's the truth that helps him get there? Well, it's simply this. He reminds himself and us by writing the psalm, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, I hope you know those aren't David's words. Those are Paul's words from Romans 8.31. But I might believe that 
Paul might have gotten those words from David in this psalm. Because that's the point of the entire psalm. And that's what David comes back to time and time again. If God is for us, then who can be against us? So first, let's look at the voice of fear in this psalm. And we see that even beginning in the superscript with the setting itself. So look at the superscript again with me. It says, To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, a mictim of David. Now, if you have any idea what a lot of those notations mean, please let me know. I would love to know. Unfortunately, most of these details have been kind of lost to history. Most likely, they're musical notations, the dove on far-off terebinths, a mictum, maybe the tune, or someone. But basically, what we know from that statement is that David wrote this psalm. And we also know where or when he wrote this psalm. Look at the end of the superscript. When the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now that detail takes us back to a very dark and tough day for David. A tough time, a terrible time in his life. In fact, keep your finger here in Psalm 56. Turn to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. I want us to see what David is referring to here. 1 Samuel 21. We're going to come back to Psalm 56 in a minute. but 1 Samuel 21. David is on the run in exile, like I said, from King Saul. And I know we like to think of David especially with all kinds of support, right? Even when he's in exile, even when he's not home, he still has all these mighty men, a 400-man army supporting him and fighting for him. It's not the case here. Those men haven't showed up yet. At this point in his life, he is all alone in the wilderness. In fact, it's even worse than that. He has a little bit of bread. He has Goliath's sword, which he just got from Ahimelech in the town of Nob. And if you remember that story, Ahimelech was killed for giving David those supplies. Not just Ahimelech, but his whole family and 85 other priests and his family. Saul wiped out almost an entire town for helping David. And so now no one is going to dare help David, not when people that are just around him are being wiped out like this. So David is truly alone. He's desperate. How desperate? Well, he decides that the safest place to go and hide was outside the promised land in the city of Gath. Now, kids, do you remember who else was from Gath? Goliath. Goliath was from Gath. This is the hometown of one of his worst enemies. And David is going to walk into the town of Gath in front of Goliath's friends and possibly family, possibly even the soldiers he fought with, with Goliath's sword strapped on his back, which he first got, by the way, by taking off of Goliath's dead body. This is insane. I don't know what he was thinking here, but this is crazy. I mean, to put it into perspective, and this doesn't even do it justice, imagine that our president was known for assassinating some world leader, maybe some world enemy, the, you know, the leader of China or North Korea. And then for some reason, the president gets kicked out of office and then even exiled out of the United States. And then our president, former president, would go seek asylum in North Korea or in China. We know what would happen, don't we? He would be killed on the spot. Not even allowed to speak in a moment like that. That's the kind of situation that David is walking into here. And so what happens? 1 Samuel 21. Hope your finger's still there. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, 
the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? Let me remind you, many of those thousands were Philistines. Their fellow countrymen here. Verse 12. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Of those words summarize what David was going through in Psalm 56. This is the fear that David was fighting. And look at what he does next. Verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madman that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now we truly don't know why David ran to Gath. I mean, maybe he thought the enemies of Israel would actually help him fight against Saul. You know that kind of that old saying, the enemy of my enemies is my friend. But the moment he gets to Gath and goes before this king and hears the king speak, he knows he's made a terrible mistake. Because he realizes that he is a greater enemy to these Philistines than Saul ever was. So what does David do? He, he acts insane. He's drooling all over himself, scratching at the gates, acting like a crazy person, hoping beyond hope that God would somehow pull him out of this. The king would think he's just a fool and no longer a threat and so would just let him go. And amazingly, that's what, that's what happens. The king just lets him go. God preserves his life. And David, looking back on this, what does he think of this terrible situation? How did he process all of this fear? That's what Psalm 56 is for. Turn back to Psalm 56. As he's understanding everything that happened and wrestling with faith and fear to try to understand those events, we see him pray to God in Psalm 56, verse 1. And notice right away his voice of fear. Verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. Can you already hear his desperation, his, his plea for salvation? He knows he made a foolish decision by running to Gath. I don't necessarily think it was a sinful decision. He might have ran out of fear. We don't have any indication that it was sinful motives behind this, but he is in a, a terrible place. And he's desperate, desperate for God to do something to fix this. Because his enemies are closing in. The words used there, he tr they trample on me. That word trample is grasp after, pants after. The idea is like dogs on a hunt. My enemies are hunting me down like bloodhounds. My enemies are nipping at my heels trying to devour me. And they won't stop. They won't cease. They're relentless. Look at the rest of verse 1. All day long. An attacker oppresses me. Verse 2, my enemies trample on me all day long. And then again in verse 5, all day long they injure my cause. Can you hear how frantic 
and overwhelmed. David is all day long, all day long, all day long. They're relentless. They won't stop. I can never be at peace. I can never rest. I can never let my guard down because there's nowhere and no one I can run to for help. No matter where I go, I find trouble. And that's especially true because of who is hunting him. Look at verse 2 again. He says, my enemies, plural, notice, trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. Wait a minute, I thought it was just Saul that was after him. Or maybe this king now is after David, but he kind of let him go, so wouldn't it just be Saul? Where are all these enemies coming from? Well, the clue then is in that last word, many attack me proudly. Now, Saul was certainly seeking to destroy David out of pride, out of envy, because David was the next king. But that word there, the picture it's giving is, many attack me from on high, from high places, from places of power and authority. And we know how this works, don't we? People in power and authority have the ability to turn the world against us. And that's what's happening to David. They're making David public enemy number one. They're threatening his friends and family and all of his former allies, saying, look at what happened to Ahimelech. You want that to happen to you and your family? All of them wiped out. Even though he innocently helped David, he was still wiping out people. So all of David's allies are now turning against him. But it's not just fear that they're using to destroy David. They're also using lies to destroy his reputation. Look down to verse 5. All day long they injure my cause. The cause, the the words he's talking about there. they, They manipulate, they twist my words. They're slandering David. They're lying about David. They're not just trying to destroy him physically. They are. They're trying to destroy his reputation, his relationships. They're trying to take out everything and every single person he cares about. Look at how evil their intents are. Rest of verse 5. All their thoughts are against me for evil. All their thoughts. Even when David was trying to honor the king, Saul was twisting his actions. That he was really envious and angry at David because he thought he was trying to betray him. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. The picture here is they're determined to wipe David out. Wipe David out and everything he stands for. Now let's not forget for a second, David is completely innocent here. He has done nothing to deserve this kind of hate from any of these people. Even when he killed Goliath, he was doing so on behalf of God. It was judgment he was laying down. And let's not forget that David is the future king. As long as he's trusting the Lord and honoring the Lord in his life, he really represents God and his people in many ways. And an assault on God's king is an assault on God's honor and God's reputation. And so David prays with that in mind. He prays that God would bring justice and vindicate his king. Look at verse 7. For their crime will they escape Lord, are you really going to let them get away with this? This wickedness, this slander, are you going to let the wicked go unpunished and the innocent suffer? Lord, what about me? 
didn't you promise that I would become king? Is that going to happen or not? And so David prays for judgment. Look at the end of verse 7. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You see what's happened to David here. He's backed in a corner. He has no resources left. Nothing to fix this. His only hope is that God would bring judgment and save him. That God would keep his word to bring salvation through judgment. Now, I wonder how many of us can relate to David's words here. How many of us can relate to this voice of fear that wells up in David? Now, I would imagine there are some people here who probably think, you know what, this is not relatable at all. I don't have a king hunting me down. I don't have people slandering me. I don't have people trying to take me out. There's no power from on high trying to wipe me out. But for a Christian, that's not necessarily true. Because we are living in exile. We're not home yet. And we are surrounded by enemies who are seeking to take us out. And one particular enemy who's prowling around like a roaring lion. Seeking to devour us. So if you're a Christian and you can't relate to these words, then maybe you're just not paying attention. Maybe you don't really know what the world thinks about you or your actions. Or maybe you haven't been walking with the Lord long enough. A lot of you young people haven't experienced this level of persecution because you are just starting to walk with Christ. Or maybe what I fear the worst case scenario would be is we're not persecuted by the world because we still belong to it. Maybe you've compromised so much that the world sees you as its own. You don't face persecution. You don't face slander because we don't stand up for truth. We don't preach the gospel boldly and we only obey God when it doesn't cost us. Just like Jesus says in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Is that true of you? Is that true of us? Do we not face persecution? Does the world love us because we are of the world? That's true. We need to repent. Because judgment is coming on the world. And Christ has even promised those that are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of on the day of judgment. I would imagine there are a lot of people here who actually can relate to these fears. Even children. I'll bet you can relate to this fear in some way. Kids, have you ever felt frozen in fear? Maybe as you grow older, you're starting to see the wickedness of this world. Maybe you experience it firsthand, or maybe you see it on the news, and it's just overwhelming. Or maybe even at a young age, you tried to stand up for Christ and speak words of truth, and you were slandered for it. People lied about you, said terrible things about you, and now you're worried, especially as a teenager, what's my reputation going to be like? Am I going to lose all my friends? Am I going to be totally alone? I know we face those kinds of temptations. Now, adults, I bet we can relate to this as well. I'll bet, though, our greatest fear is not current persecution. It's probably not even past persecution coming back. That's not probably our biggest worry. I bet our biggest fear is potential persecution. I bet one of our biggest fears is that if we are faithful to God, we are going to end up right where David is. And so we live in fear. We don't speak out against the lies 
in the false doctrines of this world. We don't preach the gospel boldly to our friends, our family members, because we're afraid of losing our jobs. I know teachers, you think about this quite a bit. The world is slowly bearing in on us. How much longer before, if I stand up for my faith at work, am I going to be fired? Or if I preach the gospel to my family, will I split them up and never see them again? If I challenge my kids on their sins, will I push them away forever? And we live in fear. We don't speak the truth. We're frozen in fear, as David is here. So what do we do? Well, we beg for mercy, as David is doing, and we look to God in faith. And that's where our second point comes in. How do we move from fear to faith in God? Well, we see David's voice of faith all throughout the psalm in various places. But you really, I hope, see David has one central message here. He's preaching to himself. He's battling fear in this tug of war. And he's preaching with one central truth in verse 9. At the end of verse 9 where it says, this I know. Look what that says. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Why? What can man do to me? Do you hear Paul there, by the way? God is for me. Who can be against me? God is for me. What can man do to me? This is the truth. This is the hope that helps us win that tug of war. That God is for us. God is with us. And that God is faithful to the end. But what exactly does that mean? I know that's great to say and it gives us some warm fuzzies inside. But what does it mean when God is for us? What does it look like in our life if God is for us? Well, first, David actually gives us three reasons here. But the first reason is God keeps his promise. That's the first way that God is for us. God keeps his promises. And look at verse 3. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in God. Myself, my circumstances, the wisdom of this world, that's usually the way it goes, isn't it? When we're afraid, we look inward first for hope. And when that runs dry, we look outward to this world, to the resources we have in this world. If I can't fix it, I will find somebody who can. We so rarely look upward, which is what David does. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. The only way to cast out foolish fear and unbelief is to look to God in faith. How do we do that, though? Well, look at verse 4. In God, whose word I praise. So David is looking to God in faith, but he's remembering God's word, God's promises here. Now, what word specifically is that? Well, remember, David didn't have the whole Bible at this point. Didn't have the New Testament. Didn't even have, you know, half of the Old Testament. He had wonderful promises in the first part of the Bible, which he could be referring to here. But I think David is referring here to the promise that God made directly to him. The promise that Samuel gave him, the prophet, that David would one day be king. And you see, if that's true, then it doesn't matter at this point if he's outnumbered. If he's overpowered, if he's outgunned or alone or vulnerable, it doesn't matter if they twist his words or if his enemies prevail over him for a time because God's words will never fail because God never fails. God will keep his promises, even the promise to save him. And so as David meditates on that word, look at what he does. 
In God I trust, middle of verse 4. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? It's the same refrain we read in verses 9 through 11, isn't it? What can flesh do to me? Did you ever think about that question? How strange that is in light of where he is? What can man do to us? Quite a bit. They can persecute us. They can destroy our lives. They can slander us. They can turn our friends and our family against us. They can push us away from God's people, away from the truth. They can even kill us. And David knows all that. He's experienced all of that. But he knows, and he's reflecting on here, if God is on my side, nothing can stay his hand. Nothing can stop his perfect will and plan for my life. I think what he's saying really is even like what Jim Elliott said, the great missionary who said, we are invincible until our work on earth is done. Nothing will will stop God's plan in my life. And listen to his confidence now. Verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back. They will be defeated when in the day when I call. My prayers will be answered. God will deliver. How do I know that? Because God always keeps his promises. And if I'm praying his promises, then he will keep his word. Now, I think we need to be careful here for a second. I need to give you some cautions on how we think about how God keeps his promise. Because I think as Christians, we have a nasty habit that really gets us into a mess. We have to be careful that we don't hold God to promises he never made. So many Christians can be bitter and impatient, even angry with God, because he doesn't provide exactly what I want when I want it. God doesn't provide what I think I really need on my specific timeline. We almost assume that, you know what, prayer and these promises are like a mechanical process. I throw up a prayer to heaven, and since God's a genie or a vending machine, he just throws down an answer exactly like I want it. And when we don't get the child that we pray for for years, we don't get the healing for ourselves and our loved ones that we want. We don't get the new job that we think we would deserve or the new home that would help us, we think, honor God in many ways. We get bitter, frustrated. We think, does God really keep his word? Is he really for me if my life is still such a mess, if I'm continuing to struggle, if persecution still comes? Is God really faithful? Brothers and sisters, when we're tempted to go here, we need to remember what God actually promises. And God promises that if we follow him, we will suffer. Jesus says it's part of the deal of the Christian life. He says in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We are promised persecution and suffering, but you know what else we're promised? We're promised in Romans 8 that God works all things. All things, including that suffering for our good and for his glory. But notice we're not promised when he will do that. We're not promised how he will do that. Answers to our prayers and answers to promises might come years down the road like it comes for God's people. It might come in an unexpected way. It might not even come in this lifetime. It might come in the hope of the eternal life. But God does promise that all of our suffering, all of our persecution is not wasted. 
it's not in vain. It's worth it. As James 1, 3 says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what's the guarantee that God will keep that promise? How do we know for sure that God is for us? Well, listen to Paul in Romans eight thirty one. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I know we love that verse and we love to stop there, but you know what happens in the next verse? Paul tells us how God is most for us. He shows us why we should believe that promise. He says in Romans eight thirty two, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see Paul's logic here? He's saying if Jesus really did live the perfect life that we fail to live, lay down his life in our place, died for our sins, and rose from the dead, then he conquered all of our greatest enemies. He's freed us from Satan, sin, and death, and judgment, and there is literally nothing left to be afraid of. And I do mean literally when I say that. We don't use that word that way, but literally. If God has not held back even his own son from us, then he won't hold back anything for our good. In other words, how do I know if God is for me in all things, no matter what? Because he's kept his greatest promise. To send his son to live and die for me and raise from the dead. So brothers and sisters, if you're overcome with fear, unbelief, if you are struggling with being alone or rejected or surrounded by evil or just overwhelmed by the evil that comes out of your heart and your mouth, and look to God in faith. Look to his promises. Look to his word. And especially look to his living word. Because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And if God has already given us his son, he won't hesitate to work all things for our good and his glory on his timeline. Now, secondly, how do we know God is for us? He keeps his promises, but also he cares for us. Look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Well, this is a precious picture of how God loves us and how God cares for us. You know, I really do think there's a lot of Christians that live in this world as if we're totally alone. As if we don't, we don't have anybody that sees our struggle. We don't have anyone who understands, who knows. No one really cares about me out there. And anybody that does care, doesn't care enough to do anything about it. A lot of Christians even assume, yeah, sure, God's there, but he's absent in my life. Yeah, sure, God's word is true, but it feels like it's true for other people. God doesn't really understand. He doesn't really see. He doesn't really care about what I'm going through. David reminds us here that God is always with us. He sees our struggle and cares for us deeply. David says he actually counts our tossings, our wanderings there. He keeps track of all of our struggles and fears and temptations and and trials. Not because he's this great accountant in the sky and he just has to know everything and keep track of everything. No, because he's our gracious heavenly father. 
who delights in giving good gifts to his children. It says he puts our tears in a bottle. What a wonderful picture there. Of course, that's figurative, not literal. But that picture there is that not one tear that you have ever shed is in vain. Not one tear is hidden from God's sight. I know you think you can probably hide your tears from your husband, your wife. Kids probably think you can hide your tears from your parents or your friends and put on a happy face. Not from God. He knows exactly what you're going through. He's right there in your grief, supplying everything you need to trust him. And you know what? He's even using that grief, that trouble, that trial to make you more like Jesus. To sanctify us, to make us holy. 2 Corinthians 4.17 promises that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you realize what God is saying there? That when we look back on the worst trials of our lives, we will be able to say one day that was light and momentary. It doesn't even compare to the glory to come, to the good that God would bring out of it. You know what? God doesn't just see our tears and see our pain. He actually experienced it himself. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just like David, Jesus was a future king who lived in exile. He was pursued by his enemies, abandoned by his friends. He was slandered. He was hated. He was hunted, pursued even to death. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, Matthew 8.20. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, John 1.11. He even sweat blood and shed tears, the man of sorrows, as his soul was troubled on the day before his death as he prayed to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And through all of this, he became our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So when we bring our struggles to God and pray like David, have mercy on us, Lord. I'm afraid. Afraid of what man can do to me. I'm afraid of the sin that comes out of my heart. Jesus can go to us and say, I know what it's like to be persecuted. I know what it's like to battle temptation. I remember the struggle and I know how difficult it is, but take heart. I have overcome the struggle for you as well. I have never faltered in my faithfulness. I never gave in to fear in a way that I would sin. I fought fear with faith in God so that you can be fearless, so that you can be sanctified, so that you can know that God is with you and God is for you and he will hold you fast as we just sang to the end. So David has reminded us that God is keeping his promises. He cares for us. And in one more way that God is for us is that God will deliver us completely. Look at the last two verses with me. Verse 12. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. I don't know how you read these last two verses, especially this verse here, but when I first started to study the psalm, this verse felt so out of place to me. David started off this psalm desperate, terrified, 
worried about what was going to happen, begging God for mercy, drooling all over himself. And then by the end of the psalm, he's thanking God, thanking God for this experience. Are you kidding me? He's actually renewing his vows, calling himself to be faithful, trusting the Lord with confidence. How can he get there? And so fast. Look at verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. Now David may be writing the psalm looking back on the deliverance that already came. He might be looking back on what happened in Gath and what happened with Saul and rejoicing for what God already did. But I do think that David is looking beyond that as well. He's looking to a greater deliverance here from a greater death. Listen to verse 13 again, especially the end of it. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. It's David saying, I'm delivered from death, but also from darkness, that I can walk in the light of life. You're delivering my soul from death, from the second death, from the judgment of hell and sin that I deserve. You're delivering me from my greatest problems. Yes, he's looking back on a physical deliverance, but he's looking beyond that as a picture, as a type of the greater spiritual deliverance that he desperately needs that would come through his own son one day, Jesus Christ, the one who would lay down his life to deliver us from all of our enemies, the one that would save us from darkness so that we could walk in the light in holiness, in perfection, one day for all of eternity, praising God and thanking God as David is calling us to do here. You know, the more I studied this psalm, I was thrown off by this conclusion in the beginning, but once I read and thought about this, I thought this is the perfect conclusion to this psalm. Because what David's saying here is, I won't fear man because God is for me. And you know what? If God is for me, then I will be for God. That's his vow. I will give my life to him as a living sacrifice. I will live for him. I will worship him. I will do everything I take to stand for truth and preach the gospel because God is for me. Who cares who's against me? This also reminded me of Athanasius. Great church father. You know who Athanasius is? One of the famous church fathers that served in the 4th century as a bishop in Alexandria. He's probably most well known for his fight against Arianism, that terrible doctrine that really just destroys the Trinity. Arianism essentially teaches that only the Father is truly God. Jesus is like God. He's close. You know, he's an exalted, virtuous human being, but he's just a creature. He's the first and greatest creature, but he's not truly God. Now, we hear that now, and we think, come on, that's crazy. No one would believe that, but everyone believed that in Athanasius' day. He was actually exiled five times from his home, from his country, because he taught that that was false doctrine. He upheld the doctrines of the Nicene Creed that said that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And people were saying, Athanasius, you're taking on the whole world. The whole world is against you. That's where we get that phrase, that Latin phrase, Athanasius contramundum, Athanasius against the world. But you know what? It didn't matter to Athanasius if the whole world opposed him because he knew that God was for him. 
no matter who his enemy was, he knew God was for him, so he lived fearlessly for God. That's what David's doing here. That's what so many saints throughout history are doing, and that's what we're being called to do as well, brothers and sisters. When we're faced with fear that dominates our heart, we go back to God's word, back to God's promises, like David and Athanasius, back to God's Son, who fulfills all those promises. And we remember, if the whole world is against us, I know God is for me. He keeps his promises. He cares for me. And he will save me from all of my enemies one day. And I know that because his son has already started. I am saved in him. I am being saved. And I will be saved. So if God is for me, who can be against me? Let's pray that we would be able to live that out. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these wonderful promises and reminders that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are for us. That all your goodness and mercy and judgment and righteousness is not just true of you, but it's true on our behalf. That we are being perfected even through our terrible circumstances, Lord, and we can trust you to the end because we know that you are at work for our good and your glory. Father, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to repent and trust you, to repent of any fear and sin that grips our heart so that we might look to Christ in faith and persevere to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.